I don't believe in God. I believe in a God called time. Uh, time is always is a notion that comes change all, all the time with the, suggesting new values, taking down all the values, and we, as a creative people, we have to follow that. Otherwise, we lose the connection with time. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is the Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. A quick programming note, welcome to the season seven finale, and we'll be back in September with a massive season planned. And thank you to all of our listeners for making this spring a period of incredible growth for the show. Now on to today's guest, but where to begin? Some figures in design loom so large and break through so many barriers and have such longevity and such poetry to everything that they put out into the world, it's impossible to overstate their influence. That's why it was such a pleasure to speak with my guest today, someone I've long admired for his bravado and sheer creativity, Gaetano Pesce. For those uninitiated, a rather reductive, basic description. He's an Italian artist and designer based in New York. And while his name is on some best-selling products first created decades ago, namely the upchair from B&B Italia that looks like a voluptuous woman with a ball and chain attached to it that makes an ottoman, most know him today for his blobby furniture and objects made from ultra-colorful resin. His new book, The Complete Incoherence, published by Monticelli, guides readers to the various stages of his career today. From his humble beginnings growing up in Padua, to his early days working with the avant-garde collective Grupo N in the early 60s, to a pivotal moment where he met Milena Vittore, an artist and partner in many ways, and someone who opened the young artist's eyes to the world of design. Milena tragically passed away too early, but her impact on his life is immense. More on that later. The book also details his legendary furniture pieces, his move to New York that would become his home and muse for decades, and his many architectural and interiors projects the most legendary of which is one that he sketched and conceived in 1987 and has yet to be built, the Pluralist Tower, where each floor will be designed by a different studio. But you don't talk to Gaetano Pesce too much about space planning and resin techniques. Instead, what makes him so beautiful to me is his radical mind and poetic soul, something that, over the years, smashed barriers between art, design, and the very meaning of creativity. I caught up with Gaetano from one of his studios in New York City to talk about the day he met Milena, his legendary art performance in 1967 called Peace for an Execution, where a woman fakes committing suicide with blood that flowed like paint, how he helped give birth to the idea of limited edition objects, why his phase as a young communist didn't last very long, and stick around to the very end for his favorite restaurant recommendation. Congratulations on the new book. and. Uh, it covers your life in so many beautiful ways and in very intimate ways. And I'm, I'm curious, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your early days and your early life. And I'm wondering, what were your earliest or first memories of your creative life? Yes, that, look, I had the granaio, we say. Why you say? In the space on top of the apartment building, Usually there was a, is a place where people put crates, put uh, whatever they don't need. And in there, I remember I create a little workshop for myself and I was building little boats that uh, then I want, I want, I, I was going to the sink with a piece of, um, 
aspirin, put it behind the boat, and they were moving because the aspirin push push the push the boat. So <laughs> okay. that was my experience with the hand and with the brain at the beginning, making toys in a certain way. Because we came from a, I came from a friend, from a family that it was not very rich, and so there was not a lot of toy. And me, I was doing the toy in this way. That that is what I remember. Did your mother encourage you to to be creative? Very much. My mother was a pianist, and with her we were talking why a composer in music he respect the time when he works, meaning. Music, like any other art, have to relate with your mom, historical moment. And with my mother, we were discussing this very much, the relation between Bach music and his time, 17th century, or others, or Chopin, able to represent the, the romantic time, or Debussy uh, representing the Impressionism in uh, in music. And uh, she was my mother that one day she said to me when I was 17, 18, you have to go to a school of architecture because architecture is the, the queen of arts. And uh, I think it was a good decision because there I learned a lot. And it was a kind of old school in a certain way where we were supposed to study also philosophy also mathematics, also physics, etc., etc. So it was a very interesting uh, school. I had famous uh, teacher, but I didn't like them. And the only I enjoyed was uh, a historian. He was teaching history of architecture called Bruno Zevi, and he was a great mind. And he was able to make people don't think in a stupid way, but think in an intelligent way. That he was... A, a fantastic teacher. I read in your book that you had your first exhibition when you were 17 years old. Yes. In Padua. Padua. How did that happen? We were a group of friends, a group of very young people, artists or so-called artists, uh, decided to do a show in a gallery called Pro Patria. It's an incredible, incredible name, Pro Patria in Padua. And me, I participated with the drawings uh, done with a pen and they were more uh, landscape uh, or interior uh, that kind of thing very simple nothing special was that group the grupo n no grupo no, n this is before now i am talking about the years uh, 57 the grupo n happened uh, start in uh, 59 1959 and me i stay with them only three or four years, because uh, we were doing kind of a abstract representation of mathematic for very geometrical things. We decided not to use our name, and uh, me, I left uh, very soon because uh, uh, between our production and reality, there was no relation. We were talking, we were expressing expression that were abstract. And uh, reality is another thing. In that moment, I remind you, there was the Viet Vietnam War where we need the young people were very connected to that. And with our art, we were not able to speak about that. And so I prefer to leave the group and do something else. And this is what I start uh, to do at that time and is still 
something that I do today, a kind of expression that is, re is related to reality. I remember one thing that is uh, interesting to say. The traditional artist, he found uh, something to, to do, and then he repeats all his life or her life. And in reality, the other people in the group, until today, they do the same thing that they were doing 70 years ago, or no, 60 years ago. And for me, this is quite strange because time change and reality change, and you are not supposed to do always the same thing. So uh, that is why I am very happy that I left this group because it was uh, very boring in a certain way. <laughs> and I, I'm curious about your time in Venice when you, when you studied there. Uh, what was it like to, I mean, you know, as anyone can imagine, the city of Venice must be so inspiring to to go to a school there. What do you what do you remember from your days in Venice? Yeah, it was uh, going to university in Venice, especially in winter, is very silent, very concentrated. Uh, you go to school. Uh, there is not a lot of tourists at that time. Today there are tourists also in winter, and so it was like a, vill a little village being in Venice because in the summer, more or less half a million people. In the, in the in the winter at that time there were maybe sixty thousand people, so it was very raccolto. I always say raccolto, silent and uh, you know with yourself, with your friend. And so the the life was to go to school, meeting the friend in the bar, discussing about architecture because we were very committed to architecture. We discussed a lot how to do this, how to do that. So it was very rich intellectually. Venice. Venice is an incredible tradition in art. So for us, it was enough to go around and see fantastic architecture, going to museums, seeing beautiful painting, incredible art, going to churches and seeing magnificent structure. So it was a school, an open school. And so I learned a lot there. And if, if you could travel back in time and maybe visit yourself, as a young man in Venice, and give your your younger self a piece of advice. What would that piece of advice be? Curiosity. We have to be curious about what is our situation, our reality. Try to satisfy curiosity all the time. There is always something that we need to clarify to ourselves. The other night, I was uh, having restaurant in a restaurant with a philosopher from in, from London, a woman. And we were discussing the meaning of life. So at the end, uh, it was difficult to, to, to define this. But at the end, uh, I think the best is uh, someone thinking is alive. If you don't think, you lose this quality of life that is magnificent. Before we return to Gaetano Pesce, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design, where architects, interior designers, and esthetes have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands. With in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design, Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives 
by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Piero Lizzoni, Philippe Stark, and Patrizia Urquiola. If you're a fan of color and materiality like Gaetano Pesce is, then you'll absolutely need to refer to Lumens for your next project. On the site, you're able to search its near-encyclopedic offerings by color and style to find the perfect item to fit any scheme. Or perhaps you want a home that's filled with radical designs from the 1980s in the style of the Memphis Group. Then just shop by Memphis Style on the site and find dozens of expressive and colorful works from creators like Memphis Milano to Tom Dixon and Vitra. To find your own radical creative voice, visit lumens.com to get started. You had this personal and, and professional relationship uh, with Milena Vittore, an artist. And in the book, you explain that she opened your mind to many things, including industrial design, that it could be a creative outlet for you. Uh, I'm curious if you could just tell me how you met and, and what was she like? Okay, she was uh, from Padua, like me, living in Padua. And so she was going to the school of uh, sculpture in Venice. And uh, me, I was going to from Padua with the train to school of architecture. Me, I was traveling where usually they put the bags because I was not paying the ticket. And so one day uh, I was up there because the, con the controller never look up. They look down, so they never saw me. And uh, one day there was a young woman who was looking to me and smiling because I was up there. And that was Milena. And so we became friends. She immediately left uh, the school of sculpture and went there because she was very curious. And she convinced me to be there, not as a student, but as someone that is listening what the teachers say, etc. And so me, I discovered the world of design. And with her, we had, the, evidentially, we had a long discussion about what is design of the future, etc. And we had a little office in, in Padua. And uh, one day... For some reason, uh, a man called Cassina came to buy our drawings because we were making drawings. And so we had the connection with the number one industrial for design, in, in industry for design in Italy. And uh, this gentleman invited us to do experiments in his company that is in Milan. And so we went and we were making a lot of experiments on material, experiment on anything with machine they have. And one day, unfortunately, one machine, uh, under vacuum machine, put out a sound so strong that touched the brain of Milena. Wow. And create an embolo. I don't know what a, a, An embolism or yes. like, a, like a hemorrhage. And she died in 11 days. Oh, so gosh. for me, it was a, a drama. But, and then I started to travel in Italy, uh, discovering part of Italy that I didn't know. And then I did, uh, I remember someone invited me to do a show in Naples. And I did a, a, a gallery full of blood. This was peace for an execution, correct? Yeah, no, the peace yes. of execution came uh, after uh, 1967. Okay. The show in April was uh, 60, 
few months before. Ah, okay. And the piece of execution was exactly uh, what you are saying. And it was a, also very strong uh, representation. It was a, 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 a plan, an inclined plan, where on top they were covered with white plastic, and on top there was a man seated on a chair, and the public was at the end of this inclined plan, and there was a shot in the dark, in a, like an, a, a, a weapon. Like a gun. A yeah. gun. And then blood was coming down. Blood was 500 liters. And uh, it was warm. So you see the, the fume of the, of the blood. It was very impressive. And the people in the audience, uh, they need, didn't, cannot, cannot leave because the blood was everywhere. <laughs> so that was a way to say, look, we are respons all responsible for what happened negative. And uh, so that was also a way to answer for me to the die of uh, Milena. It was a moment to fix and then do something else. What did she mean to you? What, what was she, how did she... Obviously, she had a big impact on you. What, what did she mean to Very you Very big. Uh, she came, uh, look, uh, the story is this. She came from sculpture to study design. So she had a kind of mixed idea of design between art and industrial object. The discussion with that was if we had to the form and the function of an object, we had, we introduced expression then is art. And this was a, our the center of our discussion. In reality, a few years later, in 1969, I did a series of chairs that were really very important because it was the first chair with a political meaning. It was a chair with the shape of a body of a woman with a bowl attached to the body. And it's the image of the prisoner. No? And in reality, women, until today, they are prisoners, more in certain countries, less in others, but they are second-class citizens, which is absolutely wrong, because the work, uh, if it can be better, it can be better only because the women come and be part of the public space, not the private. If you look at the, the politician, in the men politician in different countries in the world, they are disaster because they think only the power of themselves to, to have an advantage of their position. Women are usually capable of serving and serving the country will be fantastic. And I believe that really in the future, the world will be better with women in power. And th that, that chair you mentioned, uh, this, the famous up chair, which now is uh, sold through B&B Italia. But I'm curious, how when you first proposed that chair and that design, which was very radical for the time, did did people think it was going to be a success, or did what what was the reaction at the time? It was a great success immediately because uh, mm. uh, not only uh, the meaning I told you, but the chair was sold under vacuum in an envelope because it was totally done with foam. So the chair was like a disc, and when people buy, they went home, 
they opened the envelope and the world chair coming up. It was magic. And so this was good for storage because you storage uh, in a space where you usually have 50 chairs, you can have 200 chairs. And transportation, the same thing, very easy, etc. So for this reason, it was magic. I remember television in the world present uh, the chair because to see this coming up, this huge volume, it was quite magic. And, uh, and so it, it was successful, but successful for a short time. Then the object was too advanced for that time. The company decided to stop the production. And in 2000, they start again. Today is the number, pro number one product of BNB for selling. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, and do you see the, the upchair? as sort of part of pop art in a way? Um, do you see it as, as part of that era of... of yeah, possible. Um, it's possible. The f uh, me, I see more the chair like a old um, representation of the woman in the, in the really like 5,000, 10,000 years ago, where we, there are this kind of form that are... Voluptuous, I guess you could say. <laughs> so the pop art, maybe, because me, that was a time of pop art. So me, I was living in that uh, atmosphere. But uh, the meaning that I wanted to give is, was really political. And with what I said, the object is supposed to be functional. It was supposed to be uh, useful, good material, but also expression. The expression was what I told you. And that was the first object on the Italian design. And if his Italian design is all the design in history, that is carrying this political expression. And in the 1970s, it was a very experimental time for you. And you started to show a lot in New York uh, before you moved here in, in 1980. Um, I was wondering if you could explain your project, uh, Church of Solitude, um, which is covered in the book. And and how that was a part of your life at the time. What what was it? Look, uh, because uh, that also was a moment when a um, um, uh, modern art museum was uh, understanding the importance of uh, new architecture, experimental architecture. So they came to me. That time was in, I was in Venice. They came to me to buy my drawing. So it was a very important. It was a unbuilt architecture, let's call it. And they did a, a show at the museum, etc. I remember Pierre Praxin was the curator and um, Barbara Jacobson was also part of it. And they, and they were looking for advanced project in architecture. And that gave me the idea to make project for my, in architecture for myself with what I believe. And so the architecture in that moment became like a, a personal expression, not only functional, not only practical, but with the meaning, again, like the object. And so one day I was uh, thinking about the church in, pa the, in the past, the temple in the past. In the past, uh, the, the characteristic of living was solitude, because you had people living in farm in the big territory, and on Saturday or Friday or Sunday, they were going back to a temple, to a church, 
not only for religious reasons, but also to hear news, political news, from the priest or from the whatever. And so me, I, th I was thinking, if at that time the characteristic of the church was a big public space, today that we are always with the others, because we are always with the others, we are not isolated, the church have to be the opposite. And so you enter in a space where you don't have a public space, but you have a cellular space where you stay, you can go and stay alone. And you stay alone and you think about yourself, because thinking about yourself is always very useful. You think about your mistake, the repetition you do, the bad life you do, etc., etc. It can be a medicine for being better. And so I did the project. And then uh, the idea was to put it in Manhattan under a, a parking lot. So there was a underground church. So this is the explanation. And I think uh, the, the drawing are the Museum of Modern Art, I think, by the way. And why underground? Underground because uh, when you go to, you need to be with yourself. Uh, you have to be protected and be underground, silence, etc. In my opinion, was better. And And when it comes to the 80s, you know, New York was such an interesting place back then and obviously legendary in so many different ways, but also very difficult. Uh, I'm curious, like, why New York? Of all the places that you wanted oh, to come, come to. On. New York is, uh, until today, is the center of the world. It's a city done with minorities. So there I understand the importance of diversity. Uh, there are political people who tell you you are the same. You have to dress the same. The Chinese, they say, Mao Zedong is telling to people, you have to dress in the same way. There is no difference between you and another. Uh, we are all the same and stupid. We are not the same. There is one tree same over another. The nature mm. tell us. So me, I, I, I consider that that was the moment where I understood through New York how important is the diversity of places, languages, dialect, clay, clay, weather, and people. And so I start to fight uh, the idea of the international style in architecture that is still on today, where you have an architect doing the same building in Stockholm, the same building in Tokyo, the same building in Moscow, in New York, etc. That is a very authoritarian way to do architecture. Uh, the place uh, deserve a uh, intervene considering where what it is, the characteristic of the place, and possibly representing the characteristic with a with a kind of uh, uh, figurative way. I did a house in Brazil in an area called Bahia that is very strong from the point of view of characteristic, where uh, the house was done with a, a lot of figure figure that people understand, a lot of color, because the tradition of the black people coming from Africa as slaves, they were carrying two things, 
love for color and love for music. And so I did this house like a very musical in space and full of figure. And it was an ex- a successful house because the magazine said that this is the most beautiful without a 10 house in the world. Before we return to Gaetano, a word from our partner, Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home. From its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and a mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the Grand Tourist is always shopping for his next remodel or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. The shelving and closet systems by Polyform use timeless qualities of design to achieve dazzling results. One such system is the Lexington by Jean-Marie Massaud and is a standout for its modularity and flexibility. In this system, mid-century style meets the 21st century. With a strong architectural signature, the Lexington can create bookshelves, room dividers, walk-in closet systems, drawers, writing desks, and all with optional integrated LED lighting. Either connected to the wall or ceiling, the Lexington blurs the lines between private and public spaces for more contemporary domestic scenarios. And they come in a sophisticated array of options like oak and walnut. For more information about the Lexington and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. And uh, in the book, you mentioned that um, the Memphis movement, uh, you know, didn't really appeal to you. And I'm wondering uh, if you could explain why and what did you, what were your sort of interactions Uh with the people in the movement? I I had a fantastic collector from Virginia, Richmond, a man called uh, Lewis. And Mr. Lewis was collecting my work. And one day I said, why you don't collect Sotsas or Mendini? And he said, <laughs> the answer was, why I have to collect uh, this kind of people if a carpenter can make uh, the same job in the same way? In reality, it was uh, maybe exaggerated, but Memphis is very decorative. It's not deep. It's very superficial. And so me, I don't, I, I never had nothing to do with them. Uh, I'm fascinated by an article I found from the 80s uh, written by Susie Slesson. I don't know if you ever yes, remember Susie, Susie yes. of course, um, old boss of mine, actually, um, who said that you believed in something called diversified series production. Yeah. And you said something to her that I thought was quite prophetic, if I could just read it to you. Um, she said, you know, quote, in the future, we will not want one object done a million times but a lot of different things produced in small series, uh, which is something that you, you said to her, which, of course, today f- <laughs> seems very prophetic as like you've uh, you you anticipated the world of, of limited design and limited edition. And do you feel that you were kind of ahead of the curve or how has that happened kinda... to me several t- a few times that I was able without knowing to, to be a pre-visionary on something that happened and that. The diversify or aleatory series was one of that because that was from 1962, no, 72. And um, 
And the idea was because I, when I was 18, I was considered myself a communist. Right. Like all the stupid young people, like I was stupid, a to- completely idiot. But anyway, they told me that the paradise of freedom was Russia. So with a lot of problems, I traveled to Russia alone. Difficult, very difficult, going through countries. Finally, I arrived in Russia. Oh, okay. And in Russia, I found unhappy people. I had a dinner with a teacher of the university in Moscow in his house. I asked how was the political situation, and the guy answered, in the garden, we have beautiful flowers. Me, I didn't understand what he was talking about. But the story was that there were two children in the table. And they are usually, he told me later, that the children go to the teacher when the, the, the parents are not obedient with the regime. Wow. So me, I said, oh, come on, this is the paradise of freedom. No, it's the hell of freedom. And so I came back with another mind and, and the start of what uh, happened in my life. That I, uh, in 1972, I came up with an idea that as the people are different, the object have to be different. And so I found a technique with Cassina, because it was with Cassina, the first who, who realized this, this idea. Uh, a technique where the object in series, but they are similar one to another and not equal. Like we are. We are similar one to another, but we are not equal for different reasons. For our body, for our brain, the way we look, the way we say, we think, what we know, etc. And in a world today, I'm curious, in a world today where everyone can communicate endlessly, right? Social media, email, everything. Um, what do you want your work today to say? Like you did with the up chair speaking about, you know, women's rights and... and In the future, I believe my work is uh, remembered like uh, the one that he moved... Uh, if, um, second-class art design to art. And if I look at what they do in art, in Museum of Contemporary Art today, I see there are a lot of superficiality, superficiality, very formal thing, very, uh, very cosmetic, but there is nothing that is expressing concept. And we lost that. Uh, art is expressing ideas that people can understand and make their life better. This is the meaning of art. Otherwise, there is no reason for art. So, uh, in my object, usually if someone wants to understand, there is always a meaning that if he tries to understand, he understands that something that is useful yeah, to discuss with yourself, etc. So this is what I did. And usually, <laughs> can I say <laughs> something funny? Sure. Is uh, that me, I am uh, admired for my work, but I don't do anything important because... Uh, really? I do, no, I do very simple. What is the, why I am considered very... Uh, because the other don't do the job. 
and uh, maybe they also don't do research. They never uh, honor their work, making progress in the work. No, they are maybe going to see movies, etc. So they are not dedicate themselves to do a real research for making the design advance, architecture, etc. Architecture need absolutely a progress in because we are living in a kind of moment, like I said before, that is still the international style. The international style is a hundred year old, and we see skyscrapers that are more or less the same in the world. And skyscraper is all the same each floor. And if I look, I read that as a as a as a image of society, is a very totalitarian vi vision. And so I try to say architecture have to be expressing freedom and uh, and democracy, and not the totalitarian position. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So this is my job to say, look, uh, we have to think how we can make a skyscraper representing the reality where it is built. And when we go in another city, the skyscraper or the architecture have to be different. This is the future. Not only, I was thinking since two years that in the past the architect was supposed to have only one language. Today, I think the architect have to have a language for each place where he built Thing. So, a language for Brazil, a place in Brazil, language for Spain, language for Italy, language diversity. So the the architecture will be much rich, richer. And if you could make uh, a building today in New York, speaking of you know this sort of locality, uh, what would you want to build in New York? Dan, I had the project since uh, what thirty years, which is a fantastic project where. Is a tower. It's called um, Pluralist Tower. Yeah, I have my memory. Pluralist Tower is in another way to say democratic tower, where each floor is done by a different architect. Mm -hmm. This I will. And it's in the book. Yeah, I would like to die before to die to do that because it's very important. This tower can represent diversity, like New York, and so is a tower for New York, but also inside. There are people at each floor, different. So they have to express their diversity outside. And uh, what is a democracy if it's not the respect of diversity and not equality? No, this is an old, old belief. So if you know someone that he wants to do this tower, yes, we are ready. <laughs> Anyone out there listening uh, would like to build this tower that's been on the boards for 30 years, please, uh, please be in touch. Uh, with the podcast. Before we return to Gaetano Pesce, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. One of the studio's hallmarks are special commissions in non-repeating and asymmetrical carpet designs. Fort Street Studio's creative directors take their cues from the worlds of fashion, jewelry, and contemporary art for inspiration but everything can be customized to fit the demands of a special interior. The brand has the special access to the best dye masters in the artisanal rug industry and can easily match or coordinate with the fabrics, paints, and finishes in a room. 
harmonious palettes of color can even contain unexpected tones that create a sparkle or shadow effect. To create your own bespoke masterpiece carpet, visit FordStreetStudio.com. And how is your studio set up today? What is a, a typical day for you in the office? Yeah, the story the is this. Uh, <laughs> I have two uh, places. One for clean work is in Broadway, between uh, Broadway between uh, Spring and Prince. And the other is a workshop in uh, Brooklyn, in a Navy Yard, where we do dust and we work in the uh, very casual way. But there we do the real research. And sometimes we discover things that are very, very important. What was the last thing you discovered? Uh, I am doing for two companies in Italy. One is B&B and the other is Casino, a new collection. Oh, okay. And I am doing something very innovative for them. Yeah. I am going to present it uh, at the beginning of the next year when we are oh, okay. ready to present. Okay, good. Uh, and this is my... Uh, look, I, I work in my house. If you see my table, is a disaster of confusion. But I work very well there in the morning. And then I go with the drawing sketches. I go to the workshop with my collaborator. We start to discuss how to do this, how to do that. And then we start the, pro the big little production. Because we like not to go to the company with something that maybe is good, maybe not. And then we go with something that we try and they have to only execute it because all things is done. And you've written, you've done a lot of writing in your career, a lot of uh, some manifestos and things like that. Um, are there any ideas or, you know, maybe radical ideas from these manifestos from years ago that you think are still relevant today? Or that you would like to? Yeah, the the story of uh, the, the manifesto that I did in Ivaskila in Finland, uh, the Congress of Architecture, where I was talking about elastic thought, elastic architecture. I was expressing the relevance to be incoherent, because uh, to be coherent means that you are always the same, and reality being not the same, there is a, a way that it doesn't work. I said that we have to be incoherent because the first freedom is the one toward ourselves. I was like this yesterday. I am different today because I follow my time and I am different tomorrow because time changed. So this is very important. And I wrote a lot of articles, article, little tests about this, how it's important to be incoherent. In the old time was... a easy to be coherent because time was very calm. In a century, you had more or less the same values. But today, in a year, you have different values. So our reality changed, and we have to change. It's very simple. And so after spending so much time in New York, I'm curious, do you ever think about returning to Italy, or would you ever? No. No? What happened here? I don't know where I die, but I like uh, to be in New York. I don't want to go and, and live in another place because I believe that the city is a very important for services. And in New York, you have every, everything you need. You, I need material, and I will find. I need the tool, I find. I need the book, I find. Everything I find. So it's okay here. 
Yes. Well, my last question for you, or one of my last questions for you is, uh, in the book, you say that, you know, design today is a bomb in the mind of conservative people, and they try to keep design back. Yes. Do you feel that the art world has not sort of embraced design enough or embraced your work enough? The sort of, we call like the art world, the, the yeah. formal art, the fine art world. Yeah. You know, I think about art, there is a lot of ignorance. If you go back to the beginning of art, art was um, always a representation of something practical. If you think of the, the portrait, the portrait was functional to remember a person that he was going to die, no? Mm. Or an old man that he was not able to have sex anymore. He was ordering a view of women uh, naked, naked, and uh, because he need to be excited again. Or the church uh, ordering to Michelangelo to make the representation of the, the, the devil and the, and the representation of people in the hell because they were not believing in the church and make, pushing them to come back. This is another practical thing. So art was very practical. And if the artist was behind this kind of representation, then was art. So I think we forgot that. Today, art is, as I said before, you go in a museum of contemporary art and you see things that are usually in a museum of natural history. You go and you see a fish. Come on, the fish, the fish in a in a in a vase is usually in naphthalene, not naphthalene, in in a liquid to conserve the fish is usually in a national history. Like Damien Hirst. Yeah, I think art need to be much more functional, practical, and understandable by people because we talk about art, but we don't know the meaning. Thank you to Gaetano Pesce, Sveta, and everyone at Monticelli for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next season. Like if, if a friend of yours, if a friend of yours came to New York and said, you know, uh, Gaetano, I want to see something in New York that only you know about, that you really admire for its design or for its architecture, um, what would you, what would you tell You want them? to know something surprising? Yes. I will say to go to a, a restaurant where I go almost, uh, not every day, that is called Antonucci, where they do, a, uh, they do something like this. You go, you don't look at the menu. You say, I would like two eggs and a little bit of potatoes. They do it. So that okay. is the ideal restaurant to serve diversity. <laughs> 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 and it's very nice. So me, I go there. It's a rare place where I repeat myself, going to a restaurant because I like 
to say, look, today I have an omelet, tomorrow I have this, tomorrow I have nothing, etc. This is on the Upper East Side? It's uh, 81 between 3rd and Lexington. Yes, uh, Antonucci's, yes. Antonucci. Antonucci, yes. yes. I think I've been there, yes. So it's a beautiful place. Yes, I think I have. (laughs) 